across time and generations, birth stories are shared. The pain, the sorrow, and the joy of that birth journey. Ushering in those babies is often the midwife. The midwife whose story is never told. This is where we tell our story. Our journey to midwifery. I'm your host, Amber Wilson, a midwife myself. Join me each episode as I share the inspiring journey of midwives all over the globe. Before we get started on today's podcast, I just want to say hello and welcome to 2021 with a whole new season of the podcast, season three. I am really excited about sharing more stories this year to inspire us all. But here's the thing. I can't do that without all of you. I need you to come and chat with me and share your story, your journey. I need you to contact me and let me know whose stories you want to hear. I will seek them out. It doesn't matter if you are brand new to midwifery or long since retired. Your story has a message that will inspire someone else, so please come on and share that. Also, if you know of or you are a specialty of interest to midwifery, contact me and let's do an episode. I've had on pelvic floor therapists, a prenatal nutritionist, a postpartum support expert, and more. If you want to share something midwives need to hear, contact me. You can find me most easily via email at journeytomidwiferypodcast at gmail.com, and you can also find me on Instagram at Journey to Midwifery Podcast. Before we get started on this episode, I want to talk about my sponsor today, Midwifery Business Consultation. Are you looking for a resource that truly understands midwives? Midwifery Business Consultation offers support to outstanding people that are trying to better our world through business ownership, improved care, and resiliency. Midwifery Business Consultation can help with any practice setting with business or financial planning needs. Not ready to start a private practice at this time? Midwifery Business Consultation can help with negotiating contracts, work benefits, wealth accumulation, tax reduction, and retirement planning. Take some time to look over the blogs, videos, services, and networking opportunities to learn more at www.midwiferybusinessconsultation.com. If you sign up for a course, make sure you use the code JOURNEY20. Okay, this is the first episode of 2021 of Journey to Midwifery podcast, and I have on Stacy. So hi, Stacy. Introduce yourself. Um, tell the listeners a little bit about who you are. Right. Um, so I'm Stacy Vandenput, and I live in Green Bay, Wisconsin. Um, this is my hometown, and I've made it my lifelong residence. Um, I have been a midwife since about 1990. And um, I got on this journey um, to, I think this is a common story. A lot, of, a lot of midwives say it, they were pregnant or they were starting their own families and they were drawn to midwifery for their, their home births or um, they were drawn to midwifery for their prenatal care. Um, and um, somewhere along the way, it, it turned into a, a lifelong journey. Um, for me, what happened was um, I, uh, I always pictured myself, like from the time I knew where babies come from, I pictured myself giving birth at home. Um, at first, my thoughts on that were, um, 
ew. <laughs> I would never want to do that in front of anybody. And oh, I don't, I couldn't go to a hospital where people would see me do that. And that was very childish. I might have been eight or nine years old and really just starting to become aware. Um, and then as I grew and it came to the reality of having my firstborn, um, well, I should say my second, my second pregnancy, my firstborn. Um, my first pregnancy, I had um, a really horrific obstetric experience. Um, that baby didn't live, so I, I didn't end up giving birth, but the small amount of interaction I had with an obstetrician was horrible. Um, and so by the next pregnancy, I was, there was no way I was gonna go back into an obstetric office. And I thought, of course I can have a home birth. And little did I know that that was gonna be a really huge challenge to overcome. Um, it took me seven months to find somebody to actually literally whisper over the phone, the name of someone who could help me. And I had been made, I made over 50 phone calls in the course of those seven months, just saying, you know, any place that advertised anything about pregnancy I would call and say, I really want a home birth. You know, can you help me or can you tell me who can help me? And it was just, you know, erroneous rapport, you know, that came out of these people. They'd say things like, you can't do that, it's illegal. And that wasn't true. Um, they'd say things like, do you want your baby to die? And, and then, you know, they'd say, well, you could get arrested if you do that. And all of those things were untrue. And I knew that they, they couldn't be true and I persisted. And so I called and called and called until finally this doctor um, who had formerly attended home births, I got his name. He was no longer attending, but he was under such um, political problems and pressures because of his involvement with home birth. He actually got blackballed by the um, doctor community in, in, the, in our town. And he, he was whispering because he was afraid that, you know, somebody might hear him say the name of a midwife. But he gave me the name of a midwife who lived almost two hours from where I lived. And um, I called and she didn't get back to me immediately. So I called again and she finally got back to me. And I made an appointment and I was, you know, close to term by the time I found her and got to her these doctors in my community wouldn't even give prenatal care if I said, truthfully, I'm planning a home birth. So I was without prenatal care and, and thankful that I knew about good eating and exercise and avoiding harmful things. Um, but you know, I'm, I'm almost eight months along and I finally get this appointment with this midwife and my car broke down. <laughs> So I hitchhiked and you know, I, I made sure I got to that appointment and, and that was life-changing. Um, she was definitely able to help me. And I did go on to have the home birth that I envisioned and dreamed of. And it was a, um, such an enlightening um, experience to um, not only like set my mind to something really important, but pursue it with diligence and achieve it that it just changed my life. And I wanted that for other people. So when I started talking to other people about my birth experience and my, my journey up to that point, um, 
I thought this has to be easier for people to find than this. And that's how I started. I just really thought I want to be a resource person. Instead of them making 50 calls, what if there was a little phone number in the phone book that people found? And when they called my number, just like those sort of, um, you know, the pregnancy counseling centers that are all over, they're, they're mostly, uh, you know, counseling against abortion. Um, but I thought, what if there was a pregnancy resource center that taught people how to find home birth, mm -hmm. how to find midwives? And that's what I started doing was just putting word out that if you were looking for an alternative, you could call Stacy and she would direct you to midwives and you wouldn't have to make 50 calls. You could make one call and find um, what you were looking for. And I started kind of doing that. I kept a notebook and, you know, what the calls were that were coming in. And I'd tell people, go, you know, here's a midwife, there's a midwife. And um, as that grew, I thought, well, I think I want to do more. I want to so I took training to be a childbirth educator. And this is the journey and the path I think that many midwives in the 80s and 90s took. We've, we started out as childbirth educators. Um, that turned into being a doula. Um, the hospital birth attending turned into sometimes for me, and not, not for all midwives, but for me, it turned into witnessing violence that I couldn't stomach. And when I saw enough of those unsavory experiences of uh, birth that didn't, birth that was not inherently wrong, uh, nothing wrong with it, nothing unhealthy, unsafe about it, but turned into medical emergencies by mismanagement in the medical world. After witnessing that so often as a doula, I had enough and I, I made a commitment to only helping with out of hospital birth where we had more control over not imposing um, you know, procedures and policies on people that were not going to help them achieve a, a healthy drug-free birth. So um, a midwife moved to my town um, in uh, 1992 and she, and up until that point, I had already become a, a childbirth educator and doula. And when she moved to my town, um, I called her with, a, you know, an excited feeling of just wanting to support what she was doing and bring her into the fold of what I was doing. And, and, and she said, why don't you come over? And so I came to her house on a Friday morning not knowing what to expect, but she, she tossed me a skirt when I got to her house, we were in the driveway. She said, put that on. And I, <laughs> I said, okay, and did. And we got in the car and we drove to an Amish community and we did prenatal visits all day. And, um, and it was wonderful. I got to know her. I honestly thought I was going over to her house, maybe to be a nice a nice friend who did chores for her or something. You know, I, I knew midwives were over, overtaxed and burdened and I just wanted to be a help and, and make it easy for her to be a midwife. And, and she just said, come along with me. And so we did these visits and we, had, we connected and we clicked and we had a really wonderful day. And like three nights later, the phone rings at three in the morning and it's her. And she says, okay, Mrs. So-and-so needs us. Um, do you remember where she lives? And I'm like, um, yeah, okay, you better hurry. I think she's going to go fast. 
and that was that. And I mean, I got in the car and it was snowing and, um, <laughs> uh, you know, I was driving as people sometimes do in snowstorms. I was white knuckling <laughs> and, um, you know, I got to the house and it was this one room schoolhouse kind of, or not the schoolhouse, the, the schoolmaster's house next to the school. So it was a one room cabin and, um, no, no plumbing, no electricity. And I walk in and the, the mom's in the same room as the door is, you know, you walk straight into their, their um, space. And I come in and I've got all this tension from the road and snow and I'm stomping my boots and, and, you know, I'm, I'm just, you know, all this energy of, of a, a driving a snowstorm. And my mentor, um, Alice Skenendor, um, she, she looked at me and I just loved the wisdom of her in the moment. Um, she knew that I needed to change my energy because that energy doesn't belong in birth. Um, and she knew that it would not help to just tell me to calm down. And so in her wisdom, she looked at me and she looked and she said, isn't it just magical outside? And I just softened and she reframed for me what that snowstorm meant and made it so that I could let go of that tension in a hurry without being defensive um, and returning, you know, had she said something like, Stacy, calm down, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, I would have totally not gotten it. <laughs> um, and um, so I melted with that, with that statement and after she saw that I calmed down that's when she told me the baby is coming breach and I wasn't smart enough or I, I guess that's the wrong word I wasn't educated enough to know that there was anything wrong with that and there was a beautiful breach birth by candlelight in a one-room house with no electricity and no water and no tension and no drama. And that was my first home birth as an apprentice. And what Alice then showed me was that I needed to, she needed a helper. She didn't need someone to clean her house. She didn't need someone to babysit her kids. She needed a helper. And so um, she started to call me and I started to go with her and um, that went on for about a year and a half. And all during that year and a half, I kept on sending people to her because I had already established this sort of hotline of, of people. You know, people would call me to find out about these things. And everyone who called, they'd say, you have to call Alice, go to Alice, go to Alice. And finally one day, and again, I'm still a very baby midwife at the time. And I'm still full of all of the things that I had to to overcome and learn to do differently like pride and you know um so i i was very proud of referring so many people to her right you know so every time i referred someone i'd call her up and say hey i sent another person your way and you know i'd expect these uh, you know accolades or something for sending more people to her and she finally one day she's like stacy I can't take all these people. It's too much. You need to take the people who are calling you. And at that point, I felt not ready. And so um, she did not mean for me to just fly off and do it alone. She meant I could, I could do it with her overseeing and she would 
you know, she would help. She would teach me, but with people that were my own, um, you know, people who found me, I would help. And I still didn't feel ready for that. So I took uh, the, the internship in El Paso, Texas. Um, the school there that I went to is still in existence. It's called Maternidad La Luz. A lot of people had gone to the other school in El Paso, which is Casa de Nacimiento. Um, and I guess I was still sort of, a, you know, I didn't really ask which school to go to. I just went to the one that I found in the back of midwifery today. And um, so I went to Maternidad La Luz for their three month program. And in the course of those three months, I had, oh gosh, I think I did something like, you know, 300 uh, prenatal visits and 150 postpartums and 150 newborn exams. And, um, and I didn't have tons of births, but um, I maybe I think somewhere around 30 primary births where, you know, I was hands-on and, and um, in a kind of lead position. So after that, then I felt ready to come back and say yes to people who were calling me. I really needed that intensive, you know, day after day, day after day, not just the spread out. Um, a home birth practice can be, and at least it was in those days, um, pretty sporadic. You know, it wasn't a, a birth every week. It wasn't prenatals every week necessarily. Um, so I wasn't getting tons of experience um, that made me feel ready to, to help people. But after El Paso, I did feel ready. And so the, the final thing that I did was uh, before saying yes to clients was um, to take what is the NARM exam. Um, at that time, it didn't confer um, certification. It was just a test. And the test was a way for a midwife. And at the time we called ourselves lay midwives and traditional midwives. Um, it was a way for a traditional midwife to say to our clients that we share adequate knowledge of midwifery, um, you know, uh, materials. Um, so it, it didn't have, at that time, there was no skills test or anything. It was just um, didactic. So book, book learning, we had to prove that we learned the, the book learning. So I took that NARM exam then and um, kind of used that as a tool of informed consent with the people I was working with to say, me and other, you know, traditional midwives like me in the United States, Canada, Mexico, um, we share a common core of knowledge and, and that's part of my capability. Um, so that's how I went along for um, a, a number of years. I started practicing in 1994. That was when I took my first clients um, and, um, you know, went along on that route um, until uh, our state passed legislation in Wisconsin um, for CPMs to be licensed. And that happened in 2007. So in 2007, we, we had a pathway for um, uh, licensure. And at that time I went and did the, um, the PEP process, which is the portfolio evaluation process with NARM. So through the PEP process, I developed my portfolio. I also, at that time, we did have a skills test. I had to go and secure um, a proctor to, to give me a, a hands-on skills test. 
And then there was the written arm exam that I took, uh, earned my CPM. So um, I have been practicing as a CPM and licensed midwife in Wisconsin since then. And um, I, in 2019, I also obtained the Michigan license to practice as a CPM. That's the first year that Michigan has offered it. Um, and so I serve the UP of Michigan and um, Green Bay and North of Green Bay is my um, territory. Um, but <laughs> um, a, a different piece of that, I've been now for more than 25 years, it's almost close to 28 years now of in practice. If you add my apprenticeship time, it's 30 plus years of midwifery work. And um, I am, I'm kind of making some, I'm transitioning into something exciting and new. Um, and so um, what, what uh, I'm really excited to talk about is um, I'm going to school. I started to, um, uh, I master's of um, records, master's of records and archive administration. I'm got sorry. I got it. I'm forgetting. That's okay. We get the gist. It's, it's um, M-A-R-A, -A, Masters of Archives and Records Administration. Okay. Um, and so, you know, this is also a dream that sort of started out about 10 years ago. Um, as I, as I've worked all these years in midwifery, I've seen in my own self and I've seen in other midwives practices um, that we have a body of records and charts that we accumulate. And um, the question now is, now for me, I straddle the pre-computer and post-computer eras. So I have a lot of paper charts. Um, I think the up and coming midwives are more and more digital and they may not have the same kind of problems that we midwives say from the 70s, 80s, 90s, and early 2000s. We have got boxes upon boxes, literally thousands of client charts sitting in boxes that we don't really know what to do with. They're not secure in the sense that if we had a fire or if a, a flood or something happened that they wouldn't be damaged and lost. They are secure. We are, midwives are, you know, keep them under lock and keep them safe from that kind of threat. But the fact that if, if our house is burnt or, or something that we could lose, not only, you know, the health records of the clients, the health records of the babies, but a whole lot of history of midwifery and family health. Um, and I'm just really inspired right now to find a way to preserve that for midwives and for communities and for humanity. Um, and so up to about 10 years ago, I started thinking in those terms, what can we do Obviously, digitizing some of those records for safekeeping is a priority. And that was what I thought I wanted to start with, was to offer a service in which I would go to midwives' home offices, which is the, the norm for many of us who've worked from the 70s and onto the early 2000s, 
we, we often had home offices. Um, I think that's changing now. There's more and more, um, you know, more business offices for midwives these days. Um, but I, I thought I could go to these home offices with, with some very, you know, high speed equipment and I could digitize these records for these midwives um, on site in their own offices. So they didn't have to worry about sending them out and then, you know, put them on a, a hard drive and put them uh, in the cloud and find a way for them to, to preserve them for their, their own uses and for discovery if they need to, to if a client comes back um, and needs to access those records. Um, and I'll give you an example of discovery um, what that happened in my practice recently. Um, two, two incidents. Um, one was uh, a client that I'd served many years ago um, came again for a, a subsequent pregnancy after a big gap between pregnancies. So there were years and years, almost a decade. And when she came back, um, I pulled out her old chart so that I could um, just, you know, review things. And she, at, at her first visit, I showed her because on my charts, I always put the baby's footprint on the outside of the chart after the birth. When I do the, the family footprints, I do a one for my own chart too. And so I pulled out her little footprint chart thing and showed it to her. I said, oh, look at how the little, how little the feet were. You know, we were bonding over her previous birth. And, um, and she looked at it and she said, wait a minute, the birthday isn't, isn't right. And so I, you know, I looked and, and um, she said, we, you know, that baby or that child's birthday is, you know, the following day. And I said, really? Oh my goodness, what have we done? And so I pulled out my record of the birth certificate. The birth certificate had the same date. Um, all of the, the chart notes had the same date that was consistent with what I had on my footprints. And I ended up having to use the chart and everything in it to do some research on that day in history, because there did happen to be an enormous snowstorm the day that baby was born. And it was bigger than any snowstorm of the decade. And I was able to go back and look at the news and compare it to the chart and discover that I had all of my dates correct. Thank God. <laughs> Um, and somehow amidst it all, they had somehow celebrated their baby's birthday on the wrong day for nearly a decade. And so that was one little situation where having um, ready access to the client charts so that we can get back to them and look at them for, you know, figuring things out. That's one thing. Another situation just happened this year where a client reached out, um, they, their birth certificate had the wrong date on it for their child. And again, we were able to discover those records. They were, they were easy to access. They were, they were stored optimally to get to them, find them and retrieve the information needed. And then find out that again, all of our dates were accurate, but somebody at the state level had entered something wrong and the birth certificate had the wrong date. The child was now, you know, a teenager 
and had a uh, need to get that corrected. And because of the, the charting system being um, you know, held in a, a really easy to find and access way, was able to do that for them. So things like that can come up so many years down the line. And what I'm imagining is that um, you know, us midwives are gonna outlive the babies that were born. And some of these babies are gonna need to come back and get their health or their record information, possibly after us midwives are gone. And we, none of us that I'm aware of in the US have any kind of long-term storage solution and access solution for those clients' babies after our deaths or after we're you know, in the nursing home and we can't do it for them. What are, our, what are my kids? Are, what are they gonna do with a box of 2000 charts? They don't know, they don't want it. They don't want responsibility for it. So my vision as an archivist is to develop a way for midwives to hold and archive their records so that they're not only discoverable to the practice and to the clients for the whole life of the client. Now, uh, uh, the clients themselves may, you know, outlive us as midwives, but the babies are the ones um, who are going to outlive us. And we need to make sure that those records are there for them because think of all the genealogy questions that people have as they age. Think of all the, um, the even the health record. It, it becomes a curious thing to us as we grow older. Let's say that baby is in childbearing time of their own and they want to know more about their own birth. They may want to access their birth records. And how are we going to do that if midwives are aging out and the records are not valued by our, our um, descendants who inherit them? Um, you know, it's, it's kind of a messy thing and I, I want to tackle it. Um, and so as I started developing this vision about 10 years ago to start scanning records for midwives, as I started to delve into what it would take, I first just thinking about technology, I started to find that there's a lot of ethics involved. Um, and we really, I don't think it's gonna be as simple as just scanning and, and keeping what we scanned. Um, and the more I started delving, the more I realized that if I'm gonna do this for midwives, I wanna do it right. I wanna do it with all of the, the highest level of training and knowledge of what is in the industry, the archive and record keeping industry actually calls it best practices in record keeping. And I wanna offer it at that level. So that's what inspired me to start going to school. As I, as I read more, I realized I don't know enough to do it at the best practices level. So I wanna get it right. So I enrolled at San Jose State last year. I've taken two courses so far. And then um, I did, and that was as uh, just a special student not enrolled in the program. I was testing the waters. <laughs> and um, this uh, January, I will be starting my first semester as a matriculated student in the program. And I received a full scholarship um, based wow. on my to, um, to develop a midwifery records and archival um, program. 
That's amazing. Um, Congratulations. I'm so excited about doing something big and, and different, but yet very close to my heart as far as midwifery goes. That's awesome. Thank you. Have you, um, it's probably thinking ahead, but had thought about like what your business name will be or how you're going to travel to offices and things like that? I don't have a business name in mind at this point, um, but I do have something kind of cool. Um, I think I'm, I've coined a term already that's going to come into to use, a new term. Um, so in, uh, in the world of archives, um, there's, there's acronyms, just like every field has their acronyms. And um, one of the acronyms that gets used a lot is um, HIM, and that stands for Health Information Management. Um, and that was the first class that I took actually was Health Information Management. And let me tell you, I was so, I was, it was a whopper of a class. I aced it and I was really proud of myself for acing it because I had to work really hard to do that. Um, and I was, fighting it every step of the way because um, it, it was, I have the book, I'm gonna, um, I, I guess it doesn't matter because this is not a visual podcast, but I'm gonna show it to you because it's this thick. Oh, that's a whopper. Um, <laughs> and it's, you know, it's all wrapped up in some of these things that I hate about modern medicine, the things that drove me to want to have an alternative path that was not um, you know, the messed up me thing of the medical world. Um, and so a lot of the book, at first it was delving into the history of medicine and I was just swearing at the book at every, it's like, no, that's, <laughs> that's why you have problems. <laughs> and I finally reached out to the professor. I said, I've got all this bias and it's causing me a lot of difficulty with the material, what can I do? And she actually supported me if she and said, you know, it's okay to have bias, find support for your opinions and, and, you know, a, attack this subject with your bias and with, you know, support for what you're, what you have to say. Mm -hmm. And she really supported me in, in actually staying true to my midwifery leanings and my alternate understanding. I like to say I have sort of a feminine view or a feminist view of of healthcare that's or maybe following a feminine model of healthcare that's different from the very male model of healthcare that was developed from you know the the inception of of medicine and surgic surgeons the surgeon barbers of history right mm -hmm. um so she she supported me i said i really do have this leaning and and what do i do with it and she supported me in finding a way to write in a scholarly way and support it with evidence. And so that was cool, but, um, but health information management is a term that gets um, used um, all over. So um, I don't know if you're aware of Epic Systems. Um, mm -hmm. It is basically the largest um, health information management system in the world. And it is, um, you know, that's where all the different clinics keep all their records nowadays. All the electronic record filing systems are within that, that EPIC system. 
Um, and, and health information management is sort of something that was coined by EPIC um, and, and that came about. Um, well, there's another term that gets used in, in the field called um, RIM, R-I-M, Records Information Management. So there's these two things. And um, I was just in the course, in the, uh, during my last course, um, which was a, um, a records management course, um, we talked a lot about different um, management styles and we actually um, developed a strategic plan, which was a, a really huge deal. I, I did begin my strategic plan for a um, information management program for midwifery. And um, in it, I developed this term called midwifery information management with an acronym MIM. And um, after I developed that, I was just using the term, you know, it was just, it was easy to write it out shorter than, than writing it all out in the strategic plan that I was writing. So all through the thing, it's M-I-M, MIM, 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 MIM. And then um, I realized that, um, you know, since there isn't a, a health information management program specific to midwifery yet, that MIM is actually sort of a real thing <laughs> that needs to be developed. And after I started thinking that because of the way that the strategic um, plan, uh, the process of strategic planning got my mind really um, well focused on, on developing this, um, I read an article about how um, people in zoos had to create their own zoological information management program. Oh. And they call it ZIM, Z-I-M. And it just, it, it clicked. It was like, guess what? The midwifery world is going, and, and the academic world through my, my studies at San Jose State and other um, avenues that I'm following, they're gonna start to hear this term. It's gonna become a real term. Yeah. Midwifery information is different than medical information. We have such richer, and, and this goes back to my midwifery mentor, Alice Skenador. When I, for the first time, took a pen to paper to make notes at a birth that I was attending with her, she made it clear to me that what I write is important. What I write is not only the numbers and the times and the details that tell, you know, the, um, uh, I can't think of the word. <laughs> um, oh, well, I guess it doesn't matter, the numbers. <laughs> We're not here just to write the numbers. We're, what she told me is, you're telling a sacred story of somebody's life in this chart. So you're gonna use you're going to use words that honor the process and honor the people. And you're going to use words that, that tell the story in a way that someone's going to be glad to read if they come back to read it. And, and of course, there's more to it, as we know, now that midwifery has become professionalized, we know that lawsuits and you know, all manner of things are tied up in that chart. We have to be cautious about how we chart and what we chart in other ways too, 
not just in the telling of a sacred story, but also in a protection of, uh, you know, the job that we do. Um, being factual, you know, being accurate, being um, specific, you know, those are all really important things that I think we we do very well as midwives. Um, and that's different than if you walk in to get a doctor's chart, um, if you go in and get a, you know, um, a psychiatrist chart, those are all very, very different kinds of charts. And so midwifery information is different. And I think it deserves a, it deserves all the professionalism to, to, to preserve it as uh, records in um, a records archive or a, a historical archive. It deserves all the professional standards of all health information management, but it also deserves the special treatment of midwifery. And that's what I'm aiming for is to develop a very feminine model of information management that tells some, some stories. Um, and preserves the stories. And there's a lot to it. Um, it's gonna take me this full, this full master's degree, possibly even a doctoral um, degree to get it right. Um, because when you also think about, um, you know, we're also dealing, if I'm talking about an archive, we have, if, you know, we have to have proper permissions of the people whose charts those, those are written about so that they are shared properly in a public, in a public way, that they're redacted and that they're, nothing identifying could possibly be construed from it if it does get to the archive level and that those clients and their babies who are now grown or older, that you know they have the the proper permissions that that be included in some kind of a um, an archive. So there's there's a lot I I need to learn, and I, that's why I believe being in the master's program is the right path before just starting to do it. Ten years ago, I thought maybe I could just start to do it if I had the right equipment. Now I see it a lot differently, and I'm glad I do. I'm glad I didn't just start doing it without thinking it through because it, it's clearer and clearer every day that not only is there huge potential here for a really beautiful historic volume of an archive, I, I think um, it, that tell, that's gonna tell history in a way that has never been told before. Um, yet it must be done with the utmost respect and um, reverence for the, the subject matter. Yeah, I think such a beautiful, that's the exact word I was going to say is such a beautiful project. Huge, but beautiful that nothing like this has ever been done. Exactly. And may and not coming forward. You have this period of time with those paper records yeah. that you can you know do that with and moving forward from now may not even be available yeah exactly you know um one of the things that came out of the strategic planning is that i am absolutely planning to design a program that persists after i'm gone i'm going to design it so that i don't have to be a part of it mm -hmm. i want to i want to 
get it off the ground and then let it fly and let let, let you know others make it work because I that's the only way an archive can work. Um, it's got to outlive me and I have to become obsolete to it. Um, so I'm, you know, that's, it's really wonderful. I, I actually love that that's, that I'm able to design that from the beginning. Yeah. I'm not stumbling into someone else's archive that designed it in their way and didn't think about it in terms of after they're gone. I actually get to design it, not only with some of my own vision, but also the vision includes that it's beyond me, that it's, you know, maybe 10, 15 years down the road, I am nothing to do with it anymore, except a volunteer, you know, but for now, I'll have a heavier role in it because I have the vision, but, but it's going to be designed from the start to be something for others to take over and, and run with. Um, so that's, that's also just really cool to me to make yeah. it, make it that way. And it's definitely um, your call, your next stage of life calling. It, it really is. And I, I really, I, I love it. Um, I think you asked about, do I have a name? And I don't because um, I think this might be something that should, I don't know for sure yet. I'm, I will really seriously and carefully weigh these options and involve other people's input um, in making this choice. But I think this might need to be something that is a part of a university. Mm -hmm. You know, it, 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 it might be more than, you know, I think it, it needs to be more than just what Stacy's idea is. It, it needs to involve some bigger institutions that are going to last a long time and that have the space and the funding to make something like this um, come together and last a long time. Um, I think, and again, I still need to seek counsel on this to know the right path, but I think if I were to, to make this part of a PhD pursuit, I would also then get the help of master's students to also drive this, the beginnings of this into to making it happen. So I'm looking at those possibilities and I don't know the full extent of where, where it will go and how it will um, land, but um, those are possibilities. Yeah, and I, see, I understand now hearing your explanation that asking you, do you know what you'd name it seems so, that was just simple. I didn't, you know, I not even grasping the full management for now. <laughs> yes, that, it's, yeah, that's perfect. It's going to be very big. Yeah, I think so. I do think so. Yeah. And even, you know, I don't know what my future holds. None of us do. COVID yeah. has been just brutal. Um, you know, what if I don't make it? What if, you know, I'm, what if I'm not long for this earth? I'm so excited that my thoughts on this are getting put out to by through, through people like you and Leslie mm -hmm. um, on the podcasts. And if, you know, maybe I, maybe I'm gone in two, three years the idea is now out there and somebody can also move with this and make it happen if I'm not the one to make it happen. Yeah. And there's going to be a little legwork completed on, on the fact that I'm starting and I'm going to do everything in my power to publish everything that I write in school so that it can be um, a, a cumulative effort if I don't make it another five years or 10 or 15 or 20. 
um, I definitely want to design this for my obsolescence. So, yeah, I think it's beautiful of you to think like that. Like this is just beyond you as a human it is. body. It is. And midwifery for me always was a calling in that same way. I was doing it because, um, you know, my, my God and my community were telling me that they needed this and I had that skill and I had that drive. And so I did it for that reason. It was something I got called to. Um, so it really feels so natural for me to be um, pursuing my next steps as a calling. And, and it truly, when I started school and I didn't really know if I liked this or was into it or not. And my first professor and first class that I hated, I didn't hate the professor, I hated the class until about halfway through it. Um, you know, when that all of a sudden started clicking and I saw that actually my own, my own, you know, way of thinking about things was a valuable as an academic pursuit. Um, yeah, that was a light bulb going off for me. And then when the second class that I took had me get into this strategic plan and I actually really could see the whole picture of this so much clearer and that all clicked, I was really excited. But when the scholarship came through, um, Amber, you know, the I got, I got news that the scholarship was available that you could apply for the scholarship the day that the deadline was due oh <laughs> and i was able to take what i'd done in the strategic plan for my class and i had just finished the strategic plan that same week but the fact that i had the strategic plan so you know well it was so well laid out it turned out great and I, that happened by a team i was not alone in making the strategic plan it was a a five-person team that wrote the strategic plan for a midwifery information management program and archives. Um, we wrote that and after writing it, it was so clear to me now that what needed to happen that I, you know, I kind of collapsed from this huge project. And then I read my email and in my email, it was like, oh, here's a scholarship. It's due tonight. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I have to apply for this. And so I took what I knew from the strategic plan and I made this, they asked in the scholarship application that you make like a big infographic for it. So I pounded out an infographic and I sent it in and I got it done by midnight on time. So it got sent in the same day. And a month and a half later, when I found out that I received the scholarship, I was like, I am so on my path. Like, yeah, that to me just really confirmed that I'm meant to keep following this and to do this because, yeah. you know, it just keeps falling into place. And then Leslie was like, I want to interview you. You want to do what? And then I hear from you and it's like, yes, I am on my path. So yeah. I'm, I couldn't be more excited. It's yeah. just a really good time of life. Yeah, it's this is so cool. I can't wait to see how this unfolds for you and for the whole midwifery community. For midwifery, I know. Yeah. I'm so excited for midwifery. I'm so excited for humanity. I just, I feel like that is, that is such a gem for humanity right there. I, I just know it is. I know yeah. it is. And it's so important. I feel like even more so than ever to preserve our history right now. Yes. yes. And that's what you're doing. I'm going to try. And we know birth <laughs> changes the world. So 
Yes. You know, we have to hold on to that history from birth. And now we have, a, you know, the, the goal will be to have a means to tell those stories. Yeah. And yet with honor, we have mm-hmm. to, and that's, that's so big to me is to honor the privacy and the, the sacredness for every one of those stories that it, they not be told um, without, you know, being proper about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. Thank you, Stacy. Thank you. What an exciting talk. I'm, yeah. I'm, 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 Really appreciate being able to tell. Well, I'm glad that you met me today and you were accommodating to my schedule. Absolutely. And all right. Anything else to add before I end this? Um, no, I don't think so. Okay. Um, but uh, I really do appreciate the opportunity to tell you what I'm up to. Yeah, thank um, you I so will much. send you the, um, I, I actually got uh, applied for two scholarships. Um, I received one of them. Um, one of them asked for an infographic. The other one asked for a little video um, thing. So I'll send both of those to you. Yeah. Because um, yeah. they both are sort of a, a little quick and easy way to express what I'm up to. Okay. And I will share that on Instagram if, if the platform will let me. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you everyone for listening to the very first episode of 2021 for season three. Remember, as I said earlier, I can't do this podcast without all of you. So please, please, please reach out to me, volunteer to share your story or send me ideas of who to contact. I'll do my best to bring on any guests you suggest if that person is willing. Also, if you can take a moment to five-star review this podcast on Apple iTunes, it would help out. And if you can share, share away on Instagram, I'm over there as at Journey to Midwifery Podcast. Until next time, friends.